All right, good morning, everyone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, we are in a little bit of a sad and sordid episode in 2 Samuel, in general, and in David's life in particular. As we have seen throughout the book of Samuel, there are ups and downs that seem to follow a pattern. The lowly are raised up, and the high and mighty are cast down. And that takes on a different flavor with the person of David, who is quite obviously a hero and is quite obviously one of the lowly ones, a lowly shepherd boy raised up to be the great and mighty shepherd king who foreshadows our Lord Jesus. But in his own personal sin with Bathsheba and then in the, what results of that, and largely you could even say psychologically, spiritually, in David himself, what happens to his family is, is much his fault on the basis of his sin and the havoc that that wreaks within him. We see that he too is cast down and made lowly. Now with David, as I said, though, it takes on a different flavor. We begin to see uh, very clear references to David's, uh, the suffering that David undergoes as being a foreshadowing of the suffering that Jesus undergoes. We're going to see that very explicitly by way of geography if we get far enough along to where Absalom betrays David. We're going to see in that a, a quite poignant picture of Judas betraying Jesus. And we're going to see that even the geography is the same. So that as, as David is betrayed by Absalom, he goes over the Kidron Brook and up the Mount of Olives. And of course, on the night of Jesus' betrayal, uh, he too crosses over with his disciples the brook, goes up to the Mount of Olives, and is there betrayed by Judas. So quite a poignant Christological session coming up and, and really climactic in the sense that, we, again, we have seen these patterns, the lowly lifted up, Samuel, the high and mighty cast down, Eli, Saul, and, and many others. And then, of course, David lifted up, and then David cast down, but this time now in the image that pushes us forward to see Christ. So we come in many respects to the theological climax of Samuel. All right, chapter 12, of course, is where Nathan rebukes David uh, for his sin with Bathsheba, again, the fountainhead of David's woes. He has uh, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, murdered, so he ends up violating the sixth commandment. And then the fifth, the result of this is that David comes to his senses at the word of Nathan. I mean, after convicting himself, he then acknowledges and confesses his sin. The absolution is pronounced by Nathan, and yet there are temporal consequences. One of the temporal consequences is the death of David's child with Bathsheba, their first child. And, of course, that's poignant Christologically because we know that the Messiah is known as the son of David. So this son of David dies for David's sin. And Jesus, the true son of David, the ultimate son of David, will die for David's sin, and not only for David's, but for all of our sins in order to remove them from us. Um, likewise, this child uh, is, is, um, dies prior to circumcision, becoming also, I mean, this great tragedy, and, and from this evil and this great set of tragic circumstances, God works a profound good in that... Uh, Thousands upon thousands, probably many more, are comforted greatly by this passage, by David's faith that even though his little one 
had not received circumcision, he is nonetheless with the Lord. And David says, hey, where I'm going, I'm not only going to be with the Lord, I'm going to be with my son, giving us great, great hope and great, great comfort as Christians that our children, whether they're unborn or born but not yet baptized or born and baptized, that God is merciful to the little ones. And of course, again, just how poignantly this is emphasized in the incarnation, God could become man in any way he chooses. He becomes man in the womb. And so he shows himself to be Lord and Savior of the unborn, of the newly born, of children, all the way up into adulthood, the Savior of us all. All right. Of course, we have a silver lining in the narrative itself toward the end of chapter 12, where Solomon's birth is announced. And so things have obviously gone way down, but there's some hopeful signs going back up. And then in chapter 13, as we saw last week, things go way downhill. One of the things that I want to point out is uh, in, the, in the rape of Tamar by Amnon, it is really David's inaction that leads to things spiraling out of control. And if David had been more decisive, more definitive, even simply more expressive in his reaction, it may not have gone the way it went. Um, I, of course, as, as with David's own adultery, his own violation of the Sixth Commandment, then it doesn't stop there, but it progresses into the Fifth Commandment. Okay? There's a parallel here because the rape then becomes a murder, as we will see. So there's a parallel between the violation of the Sixth Commandment, you know, sexual immorality, and then followed by murder. Uh, David is likely paralyzed by his own sin. This is what I was referring to as the psychological or spiritual dimensions of David's sin. And here we can see how sin is not only a violation against God's law, but it also is a grievous wound to us in our, in our souls, in our minds. And grievous sin grievously wounds us and, in fact, prevents us. I mean, because what is the psychology going on there? I mean, the spiritual psychology. I don't mean lie down on a couch and uh, do Dr. Freud stuff. I mean, what is the spiritual psychology? David, is, David is, hears of Amnon's rape. And he thinks to himself, no doubt, he's, he's outraged, he's offended, he sees it as a, as a grievous evil. But what's the dynamic? If he calls out Amnon the way Amnon deserves to be called out, if he punishes Amnon the way Amnon deserves to be punished, he is a hypocrite. And that's the internal spiritual psychology. That's why he can't move on this. Now, from the outside, it's easy to say, well, he should have, and he didn't, and so he compounded sin upon sin. That's fine. But just so you understand that, you know, grievous sin wounds us grievously to where we're blind and incapable of acting the way that we ought to. Certainly, certainly in view here in chapter 13. Uh, we won't relive the nasty details of, of the early part of chapter 13, but where we left off is uh, not only does Amnon rape her, but then abandons her, rejects her, and casts her out, almost culturally with the implication that it's, that it's her fault, that perhaps she seduced him. Uh, David does nothing to take her in. She ends up living with Absalom, her brother. So here, at least, uh, at least in part, we're left... We're left with um, not a bad taste, but a sympathetic taste in our mouths towards Absalom. Of course, certainly towards the victim, Tamar. That's, that's complete. But Absalom's going to show his true colors as we march along. So uh, just looking at chapter 13, verse 20. And her, Tamar's brother Absalom, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Again, Absalom and uh, Tamar are, are um, full siblings, right? Yeah, they're, they're both born of the same mother. Amnon and Tamar are half-siblings. 
Amnon is the, uh, is the first in line to the throne, Absalom second. That little fact plays pretty large, I would think, in this story. All right, so Absalom comforts her, but it's a pretty weak comfort. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Well, how can she otherwise? Again, culturally, she's ruined. Thus, the next line. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And I think the sense of that isn't like, you know, for that moment or for a little while. I think the sense of that verse is that that's how it goes for her. She never recovers from this. Okay, verse 21. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. You know, that's an interesting phrase. I don't want to make too much of it, but it is fascinating. It is fascinating uh, because in this, in this sentence, in this verse, you have an example of what true hatred is. Uh, it's, it's, it's neither good nor bad. Absalom spoke to Abnon neither good nor bad, but it's just cold indifference and apathy towards someone. In this sense, I guess the point I'm trying to make is uh, the opposite of love isn't always hate. In fact, frequently isn't hate because hate actually shows in some part a love, a willingness for it to be different or better. Uh, viewed from this angle, the true opposite of love is complete indifference and just, I don't even care enough to hate you. <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not worth my time in the least, uh, which is which is, in a sense, I think, expressive of where Absalom is. Uh, he is, he is uh, cold-blooded toward, toward Amnon. And again, remember as we read this narrative, what looms, perhaps looms larger in Absalom's mind. He is second to the throne. Second to the throne. All right, over then to verse 23. After two full years, so a good amount of time passes, and you can see here Absalom's cunning. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. The sheep shearing represents a, a festive time and a time of... Um, almost like harvest. There's the giant party, and so he's, invited, he's inviting all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Okay. So the footnote on Verse 26 says, If the king could not come to Absalom's party, then the heir apparent should represent his father. That seems to be the argument Absalom was making. Now, in verse 28 and following, we're going to note, note the parallels. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine... And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. Very loaded phrase relative to some of the words that came out of David's own lips, some of the actions that came out of uh, David's own misdeeds. 
so just as just as Absalom commanded his servants regarding Amnon, David commanded his servants, Joab in specific, about Uriah. Just as David had tried to get Uriah drunk to cover his sins, so Absalom uh, tries and seems to su seemingly succeeds in getting Amnon drunk. Okay. And then just as uh, David covers up his sin with, hey, this is a royal decree, this is a letter, this is what I give you, you're not going to be held guilty for this, so too. Absalom, who can make a good argument and a good case for this, since he then is going to be the heir apparent. Be courageous and be valiant, he says. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Verse 29, so the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. So once more, a violation, a grievous violation, in this case more grievous, uh, a violation of the Sixth Commandment has resulted in a violation of the Fifth Commandment. All right. Um, what else should we say? We should also make, I guess we should also make the point that this is a win-win, obviously, for Absalom. Revenge. And, hey, what do you know? I happen to be the, the first in line for the crown. Verse 30. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Oh, could you imagine hearing that? This is like a Job-esque moment. All your sons are dead. And your one remaining son did it. So that's the news that David first hears. Verse 31, Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. Well, this, uh, this Jonadab character, I don't know quite what to make of him. He, of course, was Amnon's counselor back in verse 3 that led to the rape. And here one is kind of left questioning how it is that he knows this information specifically. I don't know, he's a curious kind of character in this narrative. I'm not sure we get any answers, but at least kind of he, he raises suspicions. Let's put it that way. All right, so he says, Let not my lord suppose that they've killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. I mean, what a, what a moral quagmire and difficult, difficult situation for David. Not only interpersonally in terms of his family governance, but then the fact that all of this is on a grand and national scale and involves, you know, potentially the heir to the throne. I mean, what a mess. What's he supposed to do? What's he supposed to do? In one respect, he is, he is to blame for Absalom doing what he did because David executed no justice whatsoever on Amnon. So now how can he execute justice on Absalom? That's a mess, you see. And, and here, here again you see, this, you see the tangle of sin and the web of sins and that one sin is never one sin. It's a web and tangle of sins and it so deeply wounds the soul and the souls of others that it becomes an intractable mess and then sin has this snowballing effect where it just, it just builds. And so because David uh, does nothing originally, Absalom does something. And now David can't do anything, so that's going to build its own problems. And we're going to see, again, I think snowballing is exactly the right way to, to think about what, what happens. And, 
course, we can see that in our, our own lives and our own souls too. But I think that maybe the most important thing for us as Lutherans who tend to view sin in such a juridical frame, such a legal frame of it's a violation against God's law, period, the end, and thus it, can, it has a juridical solution, Christ's death, and that's it. And that's all the more I have to worry about sin. And, and, you know, you even sort of get this idea of like, well, if Christ has already died for my sins, then who cares what's one more? Just, you know, add it to the pile. Uh, because you're just viewing it juridically. It's all covered. It's ma- you're viewing it mathematically might be another way to conceive of it, you know. And, um, the problem with that is it totally negates two things, the damage it does to you and the damage it does to others and how sin builds upon sin and snowballs. And again, and, and maybe, maybe our view is skewed because we're reading this. All this takes place over a course of years, you know, at, least, at least two years. And what follows takes more time. All right, so what does Absalom do? Does he face up to the king? Does he you know, say, yeah, guilty is charged? Does he say, I should have, uh, you should have done what I did? Well, he flees. That's verse 34. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. So because of David's use of the sword against Uriah, the sword does not depart from his household, and indeed that has begun. Verse 37, but Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And if you drop down to the study note, we're told that Talmai, uh, Absalom's and Tamar's maternal grandfather, uh, who lives in Geshur. And Geshur, um, although under David's military control, Geshur affords a measure of political assignment. Uh, asylum, excuse me, asylum. So uh, that's what happens to Absalom. Then we are told, back half of verse 37, and David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom, which of course is a reversal. I mean, this is, you can see that David is back to the normal, customary, cultural way of mourning for a son when it was the son with Bathsheba. Remember, he acted rather strangely. He mourned while the son was alive, and then as soon as the son died, he rejoiced that God had brought the child home. Very countercultural. Unnerved his entire royal court that he did it this way. He, he gave a spiritually sane explanation, though. And now he's back to the normal way of mourning in their culture. So uh, he is mourning after the death of Amnon. Now, verse... verse uh, Yeah, David mourned. And then verse 38, So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. So again, I think we ought to to let that sink in a little, that what transpires in the next chapter, you're talking like five years down the line from the rape. So you can see how sin is uh, very patient to be anthropomorphic about it, it's very patient. Its effects are very slow and snowballing over time. All right, and then verse 39 is a curious verse. It's a little bit ambiguous. I'll tell you how I take it, and I think it's the way the ESV takes it, thus the language and rendering, which will seem more obvious to you than maybe it would if you were looking at the original. Verse 39 says, And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Abnon since he was dead. Uh, This could be taken as uh, he got over the period of mourning for Amnon, and now he's clear-headed and he wants justice. He wants the conclusion of the matter. He's going to go after Absalom. 
That is uh, an acceptable way to read this verse. I don't think that that's how the ESV takes it, and I, do, I, I favor the way the ESV does take it, especially in light of chapter 14, verse 1. So the other way to take this verse, the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom, not to exact revenge, but to be reconciled to him, to have mercy on him. Okay, because he was comforted about Amnon, that is, after the morning had passed and after he had sort of psychologically come to terms with it, he didn't want to lose two sons. He wanted, you know, cut his losses at the one, tragic as it was. Um, boy, from our 21st century perspective, though, it's, it's something, isn't it? Because poor Tamar, she's just sitting off on the, on the margins of the page while David mourns her rapist. It's just you know, something else. Well, uh, then verse 14, 1, you'll see how this you know, seems to tie in again in the ESV rendering with 39 and, and show that David has a compassionate heart toward Absalom. Now, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. See, that seems to be a sympathetic and Joab sent to Tekoa, and that's a place, and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Now this is really curious, especially if you have in mind the episode with Nathan, who is, who is truly sent by God and tells this parable and elicits a response from the king. This is weird. This is weird. This is, uh, it's very interesting to read in light of that. Uh, this isn't God sending this woman. This is Joab sending this woman. And she is going to be sort of an embodied parable. She's going to be an actress, technically deceiving, in order to try to elicit a response from the king. It seems to be evident that David wants to be reconciled to Absalom, but uh, Absalom has fled, and even though he, his heart wants to be reconciled, he doesn't know how to go about it, and the actual act of doing it is, is unappealing <laughs> for one reason or another, right? All the drama involved and what it might entail and seeing, his, seeing Absalom, and, you know, I don't know. I think we can all grasp this as human beings, that he really wants to be reconciled in his heart, but he's not going to go through the motions and do it at this point. Joab, seeing this, comes up with a plan to spur things on. He gets this wise woman, um, this smart, intelligent woman who's able to pull this off. That, I think, is the sense. She's going to pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Uh, he, he continues uh, to say, Joab continues to instruct the wise woman, do not anoint yourself with oil. That would have been customary for just every day. And behave like a woman who has been mourning. Um, don't put on your makeup. Behave as if you've been crying all the time. Uh, mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? Uh, this isn't, I mean, as we're going to see, it's the job of the king to uh, judge cases, and so this isn't abnormal in and of itself. So he says, what is your trouble? She answered, alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant, that's me, had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in a field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. So what do we have going on here? Not so subtle. Obviously, two sons, one kills the other. Um, you may as well call them Absalom and Amnon. Yeah. There was none to separate them is a little bit of an indicting line. Because should it not have been David's role to separate Amnon and Absalom to execute justice so that it, Absalom didn't feel the need to take it into his own hands? Well... Verse 7, and now the whole clan has risen against your servant, namely me, the woman, and they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother, 
whom he has killed. So in other words, they say to the mother, hand over your other son, he's got to die too. She's going to be out her husband and her two sons. Okay, so obviously this is to strike a nerve. Continuing in the middle of verse 7, and so they would destroy the air also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left. And you can notice the air. The heir is, of course, Absalom. He's the heir to the throne. And uh, thus they would, much less artful, much less sophisticated, I think, than Nathan's, but a little too crass in its parallels. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remembrance on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me, be the guilt, on me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. Um, and the sense of that is, you can tell from the study note, woman suggested some would contest the decision, implying that more than a simple verdict would be needed to protect her son. Verse 10, the king said, if anyone says anything to you, Bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more. That would be the next of kin who would have right to kill the son who killed the son, uh, who killed his brother. That the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. So David said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So just as in the case with Nathan, he's rendered a verdict, and here too he's rendered a verdict, and that verdict is going to mean he needs to act in that way. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? Here's the accusation. For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. Obviously, Absalom. So now the gig's up. This is her version of, you, of Nathan's You Are the Man. Oh. And then she's got some interesting commentary here. Verse 14, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Which I'm thinking about crocheting on a pillow, putting in my house. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little dark, isn't it? It's a little nihilistic. It certainly is expressive of some of the truths of Ecclesiastes and the Psalms, though. But it is interesting. It is very interesting. Especially that she's called a wise woman. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. I think the study note points out Amnon would have died eventually. That is, God would have gotten justice. That's a pretty weak argument. So would Absalom in time. In other words, in other words God's going to sort this all out. So, so, David, you don't have to do justice. You just need to bring him back. No amount of justice would bring Amnon back from the dead. The notion is sadly fatalistic. Yeah. Implies God would act mercifully in contrast to the enduring banishment imposed by David. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's the study notes take. I don't find that entirely compelling. But, be that as it may, this is the argument she makes to David. In other words, you've already judged. You need to bring Absalom back. Verse 15, Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord, the king will set me at rest. 
For my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. All right, thus ends her speech and her uh, Nathan-esque parable. It is interesting in passing, because this is going to come up again in short order, but the angel of God. For my Lord the King is like the angel of God, which is going to be different than God. The angel of God to know right and evil. So even, even then at this relatively early period, I mean, we're talking, we're talking 1,000 B.C., roughly. Very common knowledge, common to her, common to David, common to the, the author of Samuel and the readers of Samuel, this idea that there's God and the angel or messenger of God. I think we could even go so far as to say the word of God. So God and the word of God. Yeah. Even the Old Testament saints were aware of the multiplicity of the persons of the one God. So she, uh, she compliments him, which is, again, interesting because the angel of God very plainly is Christ. And so the word of my Lord the King will set me at rest, for my Lord the King is like Christ to discern good and evil. Another, another allusion to David's son and David's Lord and the close connection they have. The Lord your God be with you. Okay, well, what's he say to this? Verse 18, Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. A little different response than he had with Nathan. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. So she agrees to tell the truth. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? So he, he sniffs it out. The woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. So effectively, effectively, David says, so, so the story you concocted is false and it was Joab who put you up to this. And she says, yeah. There, too, is the angel of God for a second time. And that the angel of God, look at this, but my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. The angel of God knows all things. The angel of God is, omni or is omniscient. Yeah, It's very interesting. Very interesting in terms of old t understanding Old Testament Christology. The, these sort of throwaway lines, if you will, from this woman are very, very telling as to what the spirituality of the day was, the theology of God of the day was. All right, well, what does David do? Um, we, don't, we don't see David doing anything more with this particular woman. He has what he needs from her. He knows he's not going to judge in her case because her case is fictitious. He's also, though, given a judgment, so to have integrity, he's going to have to act on that. And he wants to speak with Joab, who, of course, is the source of this entire thing. So that's verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. Yeah, Joab, I mean, they go way back, but it's still a king, and he can act unilaterally. Joab, thankful there's no punishment involved in this. And not only that, but he's been granted his desire. Verse 23, so Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. And that verse, by the way, I mean, just an exegetical point, is what people read back into 39, the ambiguity, the grammatical ambiguity in chapter 13, verse 39. The spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. Um, is he really so forgiving and tenderhearted? And if so, why, does, why when he brings him back, is it sort of halfway? Come back to Jerusalem, but don't come into my presence. I don't... You know, come back, but I don't want to see you. So, add that, simply add that to your data. 
um, in terms of that specific exegetical question. Does it really matter in terms of the narrative? No. Uh, the effect either way is the same. Um, Absalom has been brought back, but not fully reconciled. Not fully reconciled, especially if Absalom is, is to be the heir. Okay, so just picking up then in the middle of verse 24, after the king's decree, he is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. And possibly David is doing this as a sort of disciplinary thing. I mean, how can he just simply welcome back a murderer, you know, with, without there being some repercussions civically? Who knows? Verse 25. Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. All right, well, apparently he was a, a good-looking guy. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was, uh, when it was very heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now, a shekel is two-fifths of an ounce. I didn't do the math, so I don't know how many pounds of hair that is or whatever, but it seems to be a lot. Let's put it that way. Now, what are we doing in terms of the narrative? Why are we describing his attractiveness? The last king, and that really Absalom is heir to the throne, the last king, Saul, was described as looking very much the part of the king, being much taller than everyone else, looking the part of the king. Now, Absalom is much fairer than everybody else, handsomer than everybody else, looking the part of the king. So I think that that is uh, the narrative reason why we're given uh, this detail in this way. All right, verse 27 there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. But why is that narrative there? I mean, why is that plugged into the narrative? I mean, that's a, that's a thorn, isn't it? That's a thorn. So, so I think, in other words, we're being told, well, David wasn't ready to be fully reconciled for one reason or another, and Absalom not either. And I think that that indicated by his... Uh, well, indicated by two things. He's not pleased with the fact that David has only brought him halfway back. And the fact, the fact of Tamar, you know, that's significant enough to him. He's going to name his daughter after her. So, yeah. So David's, David's granddaughter is going to bear the name of the daughter that he didn't do anything for. Okay. Well, we've got a lot of foreshadowing here, don't we? A lot of tension building in the text. Verse 28, So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem, which if my math's right, that's something like seven years from the, uh, the rape, roughly speaking. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. So, I mean, like, from Absalom's perspective, look, Joab, you got me into the city. I want to go into the king. And Joab's like, yeah, I'm not going to go there. David said what he said. I'm not going to push my luck. So Joab would not come to him. Again, end of verse 29. And he, that is Absalom, sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. <laughs> next guy. He's not, he's not getting back to my texts. He hasn't answered my emails. <laughs> go, go, light his, go light his field on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Yeah, that'll get his attention. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? 
Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now, what is Absalom acting like here? Like he's already the king, and like Joab is his to order about. That's the interesting thing going on here. And bespeaks not only Absalom's severity in being willing to burn the field of a man to whom he owes much, uh, but then also the way he demands, commands, orders him, etc. So, anyway, he wants, he wants Joab to be the go-between and to go ask why, why he couldn't have just remained in Geshur. Now, picking back up in the middle of verse 32, Now, therefore, let me uh, go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. It's a very, very interesting statement to think through the ethics of this whole thing, and maybe even the legalities of this whole thing, though that would be, I think, even more complex. Uh, but the bottom line is, Absalom is tired of living in this sort of exile from the king's house. He's the king's son. He's the heir. He's sick and tired of it. And so he just, he wants to bring the thing to the head. Fine. Let me, you know, let me go and appear in the presence of the king. And if he's, if he's really got a just cause against me, let him put me to death. And if not, then let's get over this thing. I mean, I don't know that this is necessarily an immoral move in any way, um, but it is quite direct, quite direct. And it is interesting. It is interesting because, again, in the language, in the world of First uh, and Second Samuel, this is the kind of language that David used with Saul. You know, look, if I've done anything truly worthy of death, put me to death. Otherwise, why do you, you know, chase after a flea or after a after a dead dog? Trouble yourself after a dead dog, like that kind of language. But. But it is interesting, it is interesting, the kind of reversal that's, that's taken place here and, and the idea that we're to meditate on these, on these themes. Okay, well, what's the end? Verse 33, Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Okay, so not a death sentence, but a reconciliation. And yet, and yet, there is a paucity of information. There is a lack. This is terse. This is, there's no description. What's going on here? Narrative-wise, I think we're fully being alerted to what comes. And that's the fact that this is an external reconciliation. This is an external reconciliation. And it's not to say that David's heart isn't in it to some extent. It's not even to say that Absalom's heart isn't in it to some extent. It's just that there's a whole lot more going on, good and bad, you know, on both sides. This is a really complex thing, and they're having a hard time sorting it out, plus the fact that, you know, given that we know, well, look at the heading on the next chapter, <laughs> Absalom's conspiracy. Yeah, we know there's a lot brewing in his heart, and David's no fool, so... You just have to delight in, in, I think, in this narrative so well-crafted that you've got this beautiful, simple, stark line, and you know there's so much underneath it, so much underneath it. All right, well, I won't even say that everything ap appears to be right, although maybe that is the case. It certainly isn't. Chapter 15, verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot, and horses, and 50 men to run before him. Now, this may not seem significant. It may seem like, oh, well, the rich guy's son's back, so he gets a Ferrari and, you know, some, some attendants. That's, no. Uh, the chariot, he is acting as a commander, okay? And he's, the, the 50 men running before him may be sort of like the, the equivalent of the Navy SEALs, now, this is interesting. All of this you've got to kind of read in parallel 
Do you remember how it was that David started out uh, as this man of war? And you remember the women who were saying, I forget the exact numbers, but something like David kills his ten thousands and Saul his thousands. And that, that really flared up the jealousy of Saul. David was viewed as this young, up-and-coming, strong conqueror who would kind of, you know, sort of like people are whispering, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing if he could be our king? Well, what's Absalom's plan? Yeah, same thing, same thing. So this is, this is uh, even if it has some, like, like um, innocent enough appearances that you can't, like, you couldn't call him out as doing this. It's kind of like a passive-aggressive thing, right? you just passive enough, you can't call him out on it, but pretty clear that that's what he's, what he's up to anyway. All right, verse 2, And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. All right, well, the gate's where all the business happens, and it's also, like, all the big business transactions. It's also where cases are judged. Uh, the gate is kind of... Um, I don't, we don't have anything equivalent to it in our, uh, in our society, but it's, it's basically the place where all the action happens. We then read, And when any man had a dispute to come before the king <laughs> for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Which here judge is synonymous with king. I mean, effectively. He's not quite saying it outright. Again, this very passive-aggressive, because if anyone called out, he said, what, I just said judge. I just said judge. Oh, the plausible deniability. There, you, there we go. There's the phrase I've been looking for. That's the passive-aggressive trademark, plausible deniability. Ah, I just said judge. I didn't say king. Relax. Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause, might come to me and I would give him justice. The clear implication that they're not getting justice, that it's taking too long, that David isn't right, that David's judgments aren't right, uh, that David's system is broken. And here is Absalom, the chariot-driving, conquering hero, even though he's not really conquered anyone yet. Oh, well. And he's sitting at the gate all day, you know, making everyone happy. Verse 5, and whenever a man came near to pay homage to him as what? As the heir apparent and as David's son, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. So here is, uh, I mean, obviously he's currying favor. Obviously he's currying favor. In English, we wouldn't just say he's kissing his hand, he's kissing, never mind. But that's what's going on. He's currying favor. So verse 6, thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. He's inserted himself right between the, the people and, and the rightful king. Now viewed Christologically, this is, this is quite the satanic move, isn't it? Because if you, if you view David symbolically as Christ and Absalom as the one who inserts himself between Christ and his people, that's precisely what Satan does. And, hey, listen to me, I'll serve you better than Christ. Yeah. So we ought to have that in view since all, all Scripture testifies and speaks to Christ. This, this sort of subversive move on the part of Absalom is a satanic move a move that quite literally undermines the Messiah, the anointed one, who in this concrete case is David. Yeah, that's what the kings were called, the Messiahs, the anointed ones. So undermining the Messiah, the role of Satan. And interesting here, of course, you have the, you have the kissing going on. We know how the, the Messiah was undermined by a kiss. And those, we'll see those parallels come out quite concretely. But Absalom is a Judas figure and a satanic figure. And that becomes increasingly apparent as we go on. 
All right, verse 6, thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom, yeah, great verb, stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Not won them, stole them, stole them from David. So that all of Israel say, hey, Absalom, can't wait for you to reign. Your dad's getting old. All right. Do we have another minute? We've got another minute. Let's go a bit further. Get to the end of this. Verse 7, And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. Now the study note points out some of this. Um, this is very interesting. So, study note 15, 7, could be 40 years after David's first anointing. David was 20 when first anointed. He suffered for 10 years and was confirmed as king at age 30. Thus, Absalom's revolt occurred when David was about 60. Absalom pretended this vow was an excuse to depart from Jerusalem without raising suspicion. And, of course, David was anointed king at Hebron. So he's headed off to Hebron, huh? All right, verse 8. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Which I can't help but, like, like it's just quite, it sounds quite convenient. Oh, I forgot to mention I made this vow all these years ago. <laughs> anyway, verse 9, the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Now, this is nasty. Why does he need to do this? Why does he need to go to Hebron? I mean, this is he wants to step all over his dad. Basically, if my dad did it, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to just step over the top of him and then build my kingdom on top of his kingdom. So here, too, you can clearly see the satanic impulse and just the, the tit-for-tat nature um, but yeah, this is, so this is it. This is treason. This is his ploy. And he's going to rise up from Hebron just as David was anointed at Hebron. He is viewing David as Saul and himself as David of old. And uh, we're to see all of this. And of course, there is some bitter irony in this, some bitter, bitter irony in this if you meditate upon it from David's perspective and where his, where his sin and the sins of his family have led. All right, so again, there's, there's very, very profound and deep meditations to have in this text. It's really amazing because what presents, in, at least in our minds, is just history is very much anything but. Okay, so verse 11. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Now, not only does he take David's counselor, but look what the study note suggests, 1512. Ahithophel, the Gilonite, possibly grandfather of Bathsheba. In view of his later counsel to Absalom, it is likely that Ahithophel had helped to mastermind the rebellion from the beginning. <laughs> this could be turned into quite the movie. Quite the movie. I mean, but if that, all that's true and his connection to Bathsheba is true, who else has got revenge on his mind and has for a long, long time? Yeah. All right. Well, there's our cliffhanger. There's our cliffhanger. 
Absalom has uh, launched his traitorous attack, and he, at this point in time, holds quite a few, if not all of the cards. So we will pick up next week with chapter 15, verse 13. The Lord be with you.